Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. So welcome to the Mindvine Podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers. I'm with my co-host, Chris Bovey, and we have uh, another special guest. We've had a string of really good guests lately on our podcast, so please to welcome Andre Picard. I have uh, a few things to go through in his bio, but this is kind of like for a, big, for a communications person in the healthcare field, it's a pretty big deal. Yes. And I remember uh, when, we, when I first got into the field, if Andre Picard's writing about you, you're doing something right. It's so, or really right. Or, or really, really well. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah. If you want Andre Picard to be writing about you, and he is, yes. then you're doing something right. So um, thank you for being here, and uh, we look forward to the, the chat we're going to have today. So. For the benefit of our audience, I'm going to go through your extensive bio. You're the public health reporter of the Globe and Mail. I won't say for how long. And you're also the author of uh, best-selling books called Critical Care, Canadian Nurses Speak for Change, and The Gift of Death, Confronting Canada's Tainted Blood Tragedy. He's won uh, numerous awards for his writing, including the Missioner Award, uh, Public Service Journalism, the Canadian Policy Research Award, and the Atkinson Fellowship for Public Policy Research. In 2002, he received the Centennial Prize of the Pan-American Health Organization as the top public health reporter in the Americas. In 2005, he was named Canada's first public health hero by the Canadian Public Health Association. And in 2007, he was honored as a champion of mental health. So that's out of the way. So welcome again. <laughs> Thanks. And even bringing it closer to home, honorary degree at our own University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Yeah, right? really. So that was... What was that, 2013? Yeah, a couple of years back. Nice. Um, so as, as journalists, not in, in the, the, the realm of you, but we all, I like to always find out a little bit about sort of the backstory if we can before we get into sort of the policy piece. But I'm interested to know, as a, as a journalist, how did you get into the field of covering, you know, policy, health? Was it something that you just found that opportunity or was it a real interest uh, for you at the time? Yeah, so I stumbled into it, to be honest. Uh, so I started at the Globe as a summer student, uh, we can say 30 years ago. It was a long time ago. And uh, at the time, uh, AIDS was just becoming a mainstream story. So AIDS had been around a few years. I had covered it. I'd been involved in the student press. So I started covering AIDS, uh, oddly enough, because our medical reporter was not interested in covering it. <laughs> uh, and that's a funny story because at the time, uh, medical reporting consisted of reading medical journals, talking to expert physicians and scientists, and writing the story. And I remember her saying quite distinctly to me, you know, because I was covering all these AIDS protests and stuff and doing, starting to do some more medical stories and she'd say, why would you talk to patients? Why, what do patients know? They don't know anything. <laughs> and that was really the, the attitude at the time. And, uh, you know, AIDS has had a big impact as a disease worldwide, but we forget it's also changed uh, how we do research. It's really changed how we do health journalism. It has changed how we perceive this notion of patient-centered care. So, so that my career is all about AIDS. I've been writing about it for almost four decades, believe it or not, since mm -hmm. it's, I wrote my first story about AIDS uh, in 1981, before it was called AIDS. We used to call it gay-related immune deficiency before they mm -hmm. discovered the virus. So a long time, and it's sort of gone from there. But I think what that did was sort of shape my view that... Uh, 
healthcare is not about medicine. It's about politics. It's about n- treating people like people. It's about stigma. It's about income. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about human rights. All right. those things that are, are really important lessons that we took from AIDS. And when you start doing that, it naturally leads you into other areas. And one of them is is mental health, right. which is very. Uh, you know, there were actually people uh, with uh, AIDS were a lot of mental health issues early on when there was no treatments. Uh, AIDS would go into the brain and there were a lot of uh, a lot of dementia, really young men and stuff, and then psychosis and all kinds. So I, I kind of got in, in, interested in mental health because of AIDS once again. And right. again, has been writing about it for a long time. Now, obviously, as the premier voice when it comes to health and policy, you must get inundated with people like this issue, cover this story, my story. As a journalist, how do you kind of filter through that, and how do you decide where your focus is going to be? Yeah, so I, I guess I start from the, the the starting point for me is I do cover policy, so I kind of leave the medical stuff aside. I, I have to know a little bit about it peripherally, but I say, you know, there's a thousand journalists who write about medicine, and I write about policy, and that weeds it out quite a bit because not enough people research policy. A lot of them research medicine and don't talk about the practical of implementing it, paying for it, uh, the human rights implications, et cetera. So that narrows it down to start off with. So I can eliminate a lot of those pitches from the get-go. And then it becomes an issue of, you know, what's what's important, what's hot. Uh, a lot of stuff we do is sort of, we call it off the news, so something else is going on. So a, a common example I, I've used over the years is uh, when Stephen Harper was prime minister, Stephen Harper had asthma. He didn't talk about it publicly, but he would often end up at the emergency room. So well, that, well, we should write about asthma. And not because Stephen Harper has it, but because it's sort of put it out there. Wow, even someone that powerful and rich can have this disease and, oh, imagine you need to be hospitalized for it. So things like that uh, pop up in the news and I try and think, what's the policy aspect of this and what could be different? Uh, A lot of it is about variety. You know, I could write a breast cancer story every day for the rest of my life. There's enough research, but that wouldn't be interesting to me or to the readers. Uh, and then, you know, you always, uh, I'm always interested in sort of the, the human rights aspect of illness, uh, who's being wronged, who could be treated better. And again, that's something that leads you quite quickly to mental health, for, right. which is the most mistreated and undertreated population. Right. Th- throughout your career, you've probably seen waves of uh, issues and illnesses being treated uh, or receiving different levels of pro- public profiling, you know, the kind of the journey of cancer research, for example, is well documented. You know, you didn't talk about it 50, 60 years ago and, and look at it, what, it, what it is today and, and how far that cause has come. When did you kind of first dip your toe into the waters of mental health as a journalist? And what was it like then compared to what it's like now? Well, you know, I, re- I remember quite distinctly, and it was I was brand new at the Globe. Uh, and again, it was one of these, uh, when you're new, you kind of do everything. They just sort of throw you out there to the kind of marginal stories. And I remember there was a protest uh, at the time I was in Toronto uh, at Queen's Park, and it was a bunch of mothers who had just created this group called Friends of Schizophrenia. So moms whose uh, children, almost all sons, had schizophrenia, and they were complaining about the lack of treatment. Uh, And it was a really touching, emotional press conference. They told their stories. I, I really remember 
to this day, the story of uh, one of the mums telling of her, her son uh, dying by suicide in her kitchen, killing himself in front of her in full psychosis, and how, you know, she had been turned away from emergency rooms time and time again. Ah, oh, we can't do anything for him. He's fine. He'll be okay. And then telling, you know, the outcome of this was so tragic. So that is, so I guess that's 30 years ago. And those kind of stories touch you, and, and they, they're all about why do we treat these people differently? You know, as she said, if he had had a heart attack, uh, they wouldn't have sent him home, right? He'd been treated pronto, mm-hmm. but it's, mm-hmm. if it's above the neck, we kind of go, mm, you know, not our problem. Uh, you know, there's kind of a lot of blame that goes with, with mental illness. It's invisible, so it's like, yeah, they're just acting up. Uh, uh, especially with schizophrenia, it tends to be young men. Well, he's just being a jerk. Oh, he's been drinking. Yeah, he's been mm-hmm. drinking. He's self-medicating. Mm-hmm. You have to distinguish that. So all these, uh, the, the complexity of those stories, I think, was, was attractive to me as a, as a writer. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot to sink your teeth into. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of it is there's a lot of frustration because so, so little gets done. And I would think... Working in the field, like for the longest time, it felt like you were the only one that was listening to us. You know, we were constantly emailing you and reaching out to you because <laughs> because there weren't a lot of there wasn't a big appetite for those stories from the media and the public. You know, the, the media is a representation of the public, but that has changed dramatically. You, you know, to our benefit, you're not the only one that cares about this issue anymore. So there's been a real evolution just in the time that you know that you've been working uh, in this sector. Yeah, and I think it's not that I'm the only one who cared. I, I think it's there are all kinds of uh, societal taboos and stigmas and et cetera. So I really, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my paper that they went out on a limb on a lot of these things. Or they, uh, one of the real benefits of working for the Globe uh, as a writer is they do give us uh, a lot of leeway. You know, it's a lot of uh, media are really centrally controlled and we're going to tell you what to do today and that's that. Uh, at the Globe, there's much more... Well, give us a new idea and oh that's interesting like uh, the the schizophrenia story is an example is just a, a routine assignment uh, would probably be a few lines but then I'd say oh, you know I want to do a little bit more on that and say okay well when you have some free time sure and we'll look at it so they, they they allow you to to explore that and I think it makes for for a richer paper uh, and the other thing the paper does uh, is you know they t- essentially take on a cause we do a couple a year, and we have these meetings. What's going to be our issue this year? And uh, pretty early on, uh, the mental health issue kept coming up again and again. And I think it took some brave editors and even some brave ownership to say, yeah, we're going to do this. Uh, when we do these big projects, they're often you know, 10, 20 pages of newsprint which is literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to be a corporate decision that this is important. And it's, you know, people say, ah, oh, you just want to sell papers. Uh, there's a little bit of that, but there's also the, we want to have an influence. We want to change policy, and we want to find an area where there's a real lack. And I think uh, between editors and reporters and, and other people, y- you know, we're, we're real people too, believe it or not. And everybody has mental health issues in their, their families, right? And I think journalists, maybe we're a little bit more open. We talk about stuff. So maybe that, those discussions happened in our workplace a little earlier than elsewhere. And that kind of helped us push that, that public conversation. Do you think that's going to get harder, actually, with the way we deal with information now? It's, everything's quick information. It's surface. 
where what you do is you actually dig behind and find the reasons, the policy, the human story, and that's missing a lot. And I, I, my, I guess my worry, and hopefully we don't get there, is with the way young people consume information now. It's very quick, very short. We, it's very headline focused. And do you think it'll, there'll be less and less media that will have the opportunity to tell those in-depth stories? Well, it's interesting. You know, at our paper, we're actually doing more of those in-depth stories now because the attitude is uh, you can get the every daily news thing free online. Mm -hmm. So how do we distinguish ourselves? And how we distinguish ourselves is doing these bigger projects and exposés. Uh, now the question is, will the public pay for that? You know, are they mm -hmm. going to buy it? Uh, so far, so good. Yeah. I think it's been uh, the bigger projects in the last couple of years. This is a new, newish trend. Uh, they, they've worked out, I think, financially, and that's important for mm -hmm. the, the media as well. Right. And we haven't had to, you know, we don't do features on the Kardashians because that's <laughs> going to sell papers. Yes. Other people can do that. That's yeah. what uh, TMZ is for, right? So we, we do take issues that are others are not covering and try and make the, those our own. And I, I hope that continues. So to me in the media, there's a lot of bad things going on in the media. Uh, the bad journalism is getting much worse, but we forget that the good journalism is getting much mm -hmm. better. Right. So there, there is some hope there if it can be monetized. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the, the greatest, I guess, aspects of journalism is, especially for someone that covers issues like that, is when you see what you do change thinking or change policy, what would you say and in, in your, your career to date has been your greatest achievement or, or cause that you saw sort of change and acted because of the attention that you brought to it? Well, I think a couple of things. One, of course, is the, the mental health stuff. And this is not, again, it's not me. Uh, journalism is a is team teamwork. But I think the Globe really, you know, even I'd say the 2000 or so, we started doing this stuff and then did bigger and bigger projects. And I, I think it's really changed the public conversation. Uh, to me, one of the watershed moments was that uh, I remember doing an interview with Michael Wilson, the, the mm. finance minister. You know, this guy, very dour, man of steel, tough guy, conservative, Bay Street. Uh, and I had heard, I, I, know, I knew his son had died by suicide. Uh, Canada is a, a small community when you get right down to it. So mm. it was kind of known, but not talked about as suicide never was. And I, I had tried for a while, you know, sort of through different channels to say, and, you know, I wonder if he would talk about this. And people would go, oh, my God, Michael Wilson, you know, he's like a stone. Of course not. And then at a certain point, he, he did. And to me, that was one of the most important stories because it just said to people, wow, if this can hit his family and if he can talk about it, well, who can't, right? And he's gone on to become this real champion of mental illness that people had never dreamed of mm -hmm. uh, he would take on that role. So that, to me, was a big one. Uh, if you want to talk about impact, uh, I spent many years covering the tainted blood tragedy. It was not a mental health issue, but a different kind of policy issue. And that's one where, uh, again, we invested a lot of resources in it, uh, hammered away at the story literally for years uh, until the government called a, a public inquiry. Uh, that inquiry led to more than $5 billion in compensations. So that's, that's a phenomenal outcome. Again, it's not me alone, but you sort of take some pride in, you know, I kind of got the ball rolling on that one, and I, I wrote a book on that topic, and it, it, it again had real broad repercussions in uh, uh, the voice of patients being heard, uh, how we regulate drugs, uh, you know, all kinds of things, how we uh, 
look at public institutions because we had the Red Cross at the time, a really respected institution, which, you know, openly lied for many years and it cost people their lives. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it it changed the way we look at, at, at groups like that. So, right. so it had really far-reaching impacts. So right. I said those are the two biggies for me. So I wanted to, and I know Daryl wants to talk a little bit about why you were here today mm-hmm. and the great things um, uh, that they're going on. But I wanted to ask you, and this is a loaded one, so everyone get comfortable. I don't know how hard this will be, but, um, you know, you hear in the mental health addiction system, we know it's fragmented. We know there's issues. You know, you hear different interest groups saying just pour more money. And as someone that covers policy but also understands the fiscal reality, if, if the federal government or the provinces came to Andre Picard and said, fix our mental health and addiction system, what would you do to change to make it more impactful or effective for for Canadians or Ontarians or yeah so I'd start I start with addressing the first part of your question was the money one so people I do all kinds of talks and people always ask me that because I read about policy well you know do we spend enough on health care and my answer or do we spend enough on mental health my answer is always the same and it sounds flippant but it's not I say I don't have a, a, the slightest idea whether we spend enough because I don't know what we're trying to do and that's a really fundamental thing. What is the goal of our health system? Uh, it's a $228 billion a year corporation with no goals. There's no written goals. Our only goal seems to be spend more money than last year. So I think that's where I'd start. I'd be really more business-like about it. I, that's a dirty word in healthcare, but here's my five goals that I want to achieve. And the countries who have the best healthcare systems do that. If you go mm-hmm. to Sweden, there's a 10-point plan every year. These are the 10 priorities, and we're going to do them. And if we don't, you know, there's going to be a report card at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, it's probably mm-hmm. heads will roll. And that's the system runs well like that. So I think we need more that, of that focus. Is that a single source accountability too? Or? Well, no, it's a huge sprawling system. So okay. there has to be different levels of accountability. But ultimately, you know, it comes down to the person in power. They're right. accountable for doing that. Uh, what we have in Canada is we have... Uh, are political leaders who micromanage things. So they something appears on the front page of the newspaper and they call up and say, oh, give that lady her, her drugs or her treatment. We don't want that on the front page of the Toronto Star. And, and that's not how they should be running the system. They should be saying, here are the public health priorities and I'm going to hire good people to implement them. And if they don't do it, I'm going to demand to know why. So mm-hmm. that's, I think we should have a different style of leadership. Right. Uh, on the mental health file uh, specifically, I, I would do something similar. I would say, listen, what what are the goals? What's the purpose? Uh, and then more broadly, I, I think the most important thing for me is uh, I would remove this artificial distinction between mental and physical health. I think that's been one of the biggest barriers uh, to getting people fair access and fair treatment. Uh, n- nobody just has one thing at a time. If you're depressed, you have physical illness. Uh, if you have heart disease, you almost invariably have depression. Uh, it's an artificial distinction. Uh, and when we do talk about mental health issues specifically, I, I like to use the term now brain disease. So we have brain diseases, we have heart diseases, we have liver diseases. If you treat them more like that, I think there, there's more equity as well. But I think, you know, you have to understand I'm a big uh, uh, fan of uh, the history of Medicare. I, I really like uh, reading about the history, and I wrote a book about the history of Medicare. Uh, and I think it really informs, it helps us understand some of the flaws in our system if we know the history and in mental health there's really a lot of cultural baggage so when we brought about medicare and we're just about to have the 60th anniversary of medicare uh, 
And that Medicare was born when the federal government decided to fund uh, half of uh, health expenses. So in 1957, they decided to pay for half of uh, hospital expenses in provinces on the condition that it be universal and on the condition there be no user fees. So that's mm -hmm. the beginning of Medicare. But there's a little uh, asterisk there, a little clause in that agreement that said, oh, by the way, we're not going to pay for psychiatric hospitals. Uh, why? Well, those are part of the correction system. They're not part of the health system. <laughs> and we are paying the price for that decision to this day, right? Uh, psychiatric institutions degraded terribly because suddenly hospitals had 50% more funding that they didn't get. Uh, they wasted away. We uh, brought in a policy of deinstitutionalization, which was partially a civil rights issue. Some of it was good, but a large part of it was just hidden cost cutting. We don't mm -hmm. want to pay for these institutions because we're not getting any federal money. Uh, so it's 100% provincial baggage. We don't want this. So we let people out. Uh, in 1960, uh, right after Medicare was introduced, there were 60,000 psychiatric beds in Canada. Today, there are 6,000. Mm -hmm. There's a tenth of the number, three times the population. Now, there were too many in people, people in hospital then, right. but there are too few now. So we have to get those balances right. And, and I think if you know the history... Uh, I think it helps you understand how we have this problem, and hopefully it helps you understand why it has to be corrected. Right. So a long rambling answer. That's, to question, <laughs> that's okay. There you go. That's great. Just speaking of our current system, I know just given the nature of the way healthcare works in Canada and mental health care works in Ontario, you have people like us contacting you with story ideas, um, trying to get you to pay attention to, to certain issues and uh, policy changes, trying to, trying to shift the way mental health care is, is uh, moving in the province. I'm wondering, when you're in your daily day-to-day -day interactions with these people, can you describe like how passionate this group is like for change or how passionate they are for attention? Like what is it like dealing with that group of people like you do across the country every day? Well, you know, I think people are generally uh, one of the single most important things in our lives is our health. Uh, so every every patient group, every institution is passionate about what they do. Uh, it's one of the great things about our health system is the healthcare workers are totally invested in it. Right? It's not about not about money. It's not about power. It's about you know we're going to make people better, and so it's really great to see that. Uh, of course, I get bombarded, but I, you know I don't think one group is more passionate than another. Uh, some have the advantage of having knowing the system better, uh, having more education, having more money. But ultimately, you know, I always tell people, uh, I get invited to advocacy groups. How can we get the government's ear? You know, what do we have to do? And and I always tell them, you don't have to do these million dollar campaigns, and you don't have to have these public. Uh, speaking experts tell you how to to spin stuff you you just have to be real uh, you know be invested in your story uh, tell your story now there's not always the outlet to do that or the opportunity but uh, you know it doesn't always have to be the globe and mail it can be your local paper it can be your blog online uh, the good thing about the way the media has changed is there's many many outlets to for your passion mm. uh, so I, I guess for me uh, it comes back to what i said earlier it's sort of whimsy if I could put it that way I sort of pick and choose stuff that I can do I can only do so much but I, I always encourage people you know I'm not the only one out there there's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that can be done in different ways speaking of passion and passionate patients and staff I think you saw some of that today at the Grand Rounds presentation um, which was uh, hosted by our eating disorders unit and you spent some time with them today so I was wondering if you could tell us about kind of what your experience has been like today and working with that group 
Yeah, so that's an example of, you know, why do I write about, why do I want to write about eating, eating disorders? Because it's sort of the, uh, you know, we always often say mental health is the orphan of, of Medicare, and eating disorders is probably the orphan of mental health, right? So if it's a, really the forgotten of the forgotten parts. So that, that intrigues me. Why is this group cast aside? Uh, you know, how can we change that? And I, I think the simple answer to me as, well, this is a, a disease that strikes young women. So voiceless people in our society, young women are sort of dismissed as, you know, oh, they're just young kids and they're just girls, all they care about is their looks. But, you know, this is a real serious illness. And so if you can put, take that story, that stigma, and then put some policy solutions to it, to me it makes for, for a really good story. And the opportunity here today was one that... Uh, you know, when I heard about it, I said, I'll be there. And, you know, no matter what, this is really unique. Uh, a bunch of young patients doing grand rounds, which is, you know, traditionally this medical <laughs> guy gets up there in the white coat and pontificates. Uh, and the girls sort of taking charge. And, uh, you know, I love the part where they told the doctor, hey, that's, you've gone over your time. Sit down. <laughs> You're eating into our time. Yeah. That, that's how healthcare should be. It should be a conversation between patients and providers. It shouldn't be this paternalistic thing. So to me, it was really refreshing and, and insightful to see them in action. Great. Well, it's been great and insightful to have you here. We appreciate you taking the time and visiting Ontario Shores and, and uh, joining us on the podcast. And uh, we hope to see you again for a future project, maybe. We'll, yeah. we'll, just because we had you on doesn't mean we're not going to stop bugging you. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. But, but we do appreciate your time today. Thank you. Yeah.